The year 1953, a plane touches down at Smithies Airport in Sydney. On board is an American named Lee Gordon. The Australian music scene will never be the same again. From then until now, these are the stories. Hey there, this is Josh Ersom and you're listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. This episode is on Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and their number one smash hit, Poison Ivy. Our special guests are Aztecs guitarist and songwriter, Tony Barber. To clear up any confusion, this Tony Barber is not the host of Sale of the Century. That's another Tony Barber. However, Tony is perhaps one of the most influential musicians in the Australian beat pop era. Our other guest is the co-founder of the Aztecs, bass player John Bluey Watson. She comes on black her And everybody knows She'll get you in dodge Well you can look but you better not Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs are one of the most iconic bands in the history of Australian music. Led by the late great Billy Thorpe, the various versions of the Aztecs dominated the music scene for several decades. Although the lineup of the band may have changed several times over the years, one constant that remained was Billy Thorpe leading the charge. This episode takes a look at their number one hit, Poison Ivy. The band stared down the English invaders for a while, and Poison Ivy even kept the Beatles' Can't Buy Me Love from the top spot. Can't buy me love! Showing the immense popularity of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, they relegated the Beatles to number two on the charts, when the lads from Liverpool were actually in Australia on tour. I'm sure you've all seen the photos and news footage of the mayhem that Beatlemania created down under in June 1964. The world had seen nothing like it, and Australia was just as crazy. So consider this, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs stood toe-to-toe with the all-conquering Fab Four, and for a brief moment in time, on the charts at least, the band were bigger than the Beatles. The story of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs didn't begin at any musical mecca like Liverpool, where the mop tops kicked off. The bones of the band formed in early 1963 in the northern Sydney suburb of Hornsby. Originally known as the Vibratones, they were an instrumental group in the mould of the shadows. The lineup was Bluey on bass, Valentine Jones on rhythm guitar, drummer Cole Bajant, and the lead guitarist was future BG Vince Maloney. As a working band, they were the kings of Hornsby. Here's Bluey. We ran Hornsby, we'd done the teenage hop <laughs> at the local ho- uh, primary school, we'd done the scout dance, <laughs> and we'd done the little football club once a month, so we were the only band that was working three Saturdays in the month. The Vibratones even travelled to Newcastle to appear on the local TV station, MBN. I mean, you just got your licence and... Before that, Vince's father had to run us around to all our dances because we were too young for licences. So, you know, we used to have to get lifts around with our, our gear to, just to work the scout dance. But at that stage, we had just got our licence, so that was sort of a, yeah, big thing going up to Newcastle for Saturday night to do a job. The popularity of the Vibratones grew to such an extent that in June 1963, they recorded their first single, Man of Mystery. The song was released on the lead-on label, 
While Man of Mystery may not have troubled the charts like they would in the near future, the band was now on its way. The B-side was Expressway, and this song was written by Vince. At the suggestion of Valentine Jones, the band changed their name from the Vibratones to the Aztecs. In January 1964, they released another single under their new name on the Linda Lee label. The A-side was called Smoke and Stack and was written by Valentine Jones. B-side was Board Boogie, and this song was written by Vince. The newly named Aztecs may not have been topping the charts yet, but they were quickly making a name for themselves on the live music circuit in Sydney. Local promoter John Harrigan gave the band a regular gig at his venue Beach House. It wasn't long before the band outgrew this venue, and Harrigan upgraded the band to his bigger venue, the iconic Surf City in King's Cross. John Harrigan said, oh, would you like to do the weekends in a place called Beach House, which was his an- another one of his um, venues. Um, he then um, said, would you like to do the weekend? So we started doing 
Friday night and Saturday night in Beach House. After a few weeks, I suppose, a couple of months, um, it got we got that many there. The fire brigade closed us down because we were jamming that many into the place and there was, wasn't was enough fire escapes. So at the time when we were doing Beach House, we'd work there till 12 and then we'd go up to Surf City and do the late one, start at 12 till 2 o'clock in the morning when the big bands would go. They'd finish at 12 then. So we used to go up there Friday night and Saturday night and do till 2. So then when we got up to the Everyone used to follow us up to there for those two hours. Okay, so that's how the Aztecs came to become regulars at Surf City. You've obviously noticed that we haven't mentioned Billy Thorpe yet. While his future bandmates all grew up on Sydney's northern suburbs, the Thorpe family immigrated to Australia from England in 1955, eventually settling in Brisbane. And it's here that Billy has his first taste of stardom. Aged just 11 years old and going by the stage name of Little Rock Allen, Billy quickly became a star on the Brisbane entertainment scene. He would often perform alongside headline acts such as Johnny O'Keefe, Cole Joy and Reg Lindsay. He even shared the stage with Chuck Berry and Jerry Lee Lewis. In 1957, as an always singing, yodelling guitarist, Billy even gained a -a four-day-a-week TV gig on QTQ9 in Brisbane on the variety show The Channel Niners. While often child stars fade from the spotlight as quickly as they arrived, Billy was already planning on making a career out of this show business stuff. It was good because he could yodel or do anything. It was fabulous. Yeah, as a as a young star going to school, yeah, yeah. We didn't know him then anyway, but um, yeah. Since then, we've learnt that and seen some of the clippings of um, Little Rock Allen. <laughs> but he was he was always a good vocalist. He he always had plenty of oomph in him and go in him. Uh, plenty of ego, <laughs> which. <laughs> Everyone knows. (laughs) That's Bill. While his Little Rock Allen persona was more country than rock, he was learning a lot about rock and roll from watching and hanging around one of Brisbane's premier bands, The Planets. In late 1963, age 17, Billy decides to try his luck in Sydney and finds his way to Surf City. Around this time, John Harrigan is trying to work out what to do with the Aztecs. The band is one of the best live acts in Sydney. However, the popularity of the instrumental craze was beginning to die out. Harrigan decided the Aztecs needed a lead singer. Billy had been hanging around Surf City and pestering Harrigan at every opportunity he could to get up on stage and do his thing. Even though Billy needed a band and the Aztecs were on the lookout for a lead singer, Thorpe still didn't get a walk-up start. There was actually three singers that used to get up with us while we were there. So we moved out of Beach House and we went up and then had full time in Surf City. Um, and still doing instrumental surf, surf and shadows material. Um, Free singers used to get up with us because that was good for us because we wouldn't have to work so hard. One was Big Normie Miller that used to sing all Roy Orbison material, very good, and Roy Orbison stuff. Uh, And a guy that came down with Billy from Brisbane, Peter James, which is still on the Brisbane scene at this moment. Um, Yeah, so they came down... And then we used to get them up and Big Normie up and Peter up and then Billy up. Then the Beatles started coming in. That's how that happened. And we thought, whoa, none of us are strong enough to sing, like get out the front. We need a singer. And Harrigan came up with the idea, well, what about one of these three you've used here? And Billy just had a... He just, well, Big Normie was a big guy and didn't sort of fit in. We were all about the same height, the same weight, 
and it, Harrigan just didn't think that Normie was suited the band. Very good singer. Anyway, then Peter James, he's a good singer, and um, but he was tall. Billy was the same height as us, the same weight as us, and I don't mean to say this, but I, <laughs> he was the best singer out of the three of them in my in my book. But <laughs> the others were good, mind you. Though, <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's how Billy came to do that show. That's where it all started from. As Harrigan watches the crowd going crazy for this newly formed combination, he could see the dollar signs flashing before his eyes. And at the end of the gig, with the crowd still going wild, he seizes the opportunity and jumps on stage, grabs the microphone and announces to the crowd, next Saturday night, headlighting at Surf City, will be Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. It would turn out to be a classic moment in Australian music history. While promoting them, Harrigan decides that he's also going to manage the band. He puts them on a wage and they are now full-time musicians. Valentine Jones decides that the life of a touring muso is not for him and leaves the band. On the surface, it appears to be a bad move on Valentine's part. However, it's fair to say that if he didn't leave the band, the newly arrived 10-pound pom Tony Barber wouldn't have joined the Aztecs, and who knows what they would have become. Thorpey was obviously destined for stardom. However, meeting Tony would become a pivotal moment in the band's career. I was also starting to write more songs, and so I made trips into town on the train, tried to go to radio stations, tried to connect with people uh, to get my songs recorded. Uh, and then I heard about these auditions that were on at a place called Surf City up at King's Cross. I didn't realise, of course, that King's Cross was the epicentre of everything that was bad <laughs> that my mother told me to stay away from. And that was pretty rough in those days, I can tell you. Surf City, uh, King's Cross. Anyway, I go to King's Cross on the Sunday. There is this big theatre, looked like a cinema, which is what it was. And I go in and uh, there's a band playing on the stage, hardly anyone inside the building sitting in seats and things. Most of them are removed to make a dance floor, but there were a few seats at the back. And there was bands playing, and then I, I went to the front office and said, "Is this where you audition for these, uh, you know, um, these gigs and things that you're advertising?" And he said, "Yep, yep. What's your name?" Blah, blah, blah. So I go down the front. I wait for my turn. I get up on the stage. I sing a couple of songs that I'd written, and then I get off. And um, then I'm approached by this squat little guy, really, uh, you know, a swagger to him, munching on a greasy hamburger and uh, with the grease dripping down on the floor. And I knew straight away by looking at his face and his demeanor, I thought, this is a guy that's not going to clean that up. <laughs> He's going to leave someone else to do that. And he says, mate, I said, yeah. He said, uh, not bad, not bad, not bad. He said, uh, he says, you, you don't play the guitar very well, do you? I mean, he actually swore about it, he, uh, if I can say this here. He says, you play fucking awful guitar. He said, but you look good. And that was Billy Thorpe. And that's how we met. The influence that Tony had on the new beat pop on Merseyside craze in Australia can't be understated. Shortly before emigrating to Australia, the band he was in supported the Beatles in his hometown and he got to see the Fab Four phenomenon firsthand. I was in England right when it all came out and I was fortunate enough uh, to see them live in that raw stage uh, because this happens quite often. A group's not very popular, they get a few bookings somewhere and then all of a sudden they become you know, big. Nothing was bigger in England at that time than the Beatles. They just broke through the sea and broke all the records. But of course, they still had to honour those bookings that they'd made before they were big time. 
and one of them was near us in little old Norwich in Norfolk. I forget where it was. It was a, somewhere outside of, of Norwich, and we were playing as a support act on that on that particular night, almost like a village hall. I mean, nothing swish, but the Beatles had to perform there. And I stood there uh, in the front there and watched them, and I thought, whoa. While the Aztecs were doing their best shadows imitation in Australia, Tony was taking in the real thing, standing in the wings, watching legendary acts such as the Shadows and the Beatles. He couldn't help but absorb the brilliance he was seeing. I had the same feeling when I first watched The Shadows live. And i got to tell you, watching The Shadows, Cliff Richard's uh, group, is something else. They had it. They did this so well. I watched them at a theatre in Norwich, and um, uh, the curtain's drawn, and they start playing. Of course, and you can just vaguely hear it. And then all of a sudden, those curtains open, and boom! Yeah, I mean, you're hearing Apache and all those... It's one hell of a group to watch. Now a member of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, Tony set about educating the band and helping them to see that a worldwide musical change was coming. Yes, and I told Billy this. I said, Billy, I said, I've heard all the songs you're sort of doing and things like that. I said, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, Billy, I've seen this group called the Beatles, and I said, I'm telling you, every, every country in the world where there is going to be the local pop groups, one of them is going to be the Beatles version, you know, in their country. They may not do Beatles stuff, I said, but they're going to be the equivalent. They're going to change and they're going to look like the Beatles. They're going to dress sort of like the Beatles, etc. I says, we have an opportunity. We've probably got about six months to make ourselves the top group in Australia. I said, and then we can not maybe stand alongside the Beatles, but when the Beatles aren't here and they're not going to be <laughs> Very often, Billy, I said, it'll be us. They will turn to us as the substitute. And he said, okay, then how do we do it? I said, well, we listen to the records and we get dressed differently and da da da. So Billy and I plotted out an entire sort of look, including right down to our clothes that we were going to wear because we knew that fashion as well was one of those things becoming associated with a group at the same time. And, uh, we were so, so lucky because what happened to us was our manager um, owned, he rented that theatre at King's Cross. And so we used to go there because he then became our manager and we were allowed to go and use the stage here through the daytimes to just practice. And better still, we had to play there, I think, five, six nights a week, five, six nights a week because he put us on a, a set wage, um, which I think was £40, which, of course, in those days, we thought, whoa, this is fantastic. <laughs> We've got our own rehearsal place. And so Billy and I then suddenly sort of realised, we said, hey, we're rehearsing all day here and we're getting um, uh, songs, etc. down pat. We're writing our own stuff and things as well. He says, but each week we were playing to maybe two or three or 4,000 kids and people that were coming to those dances each night, especially on a Saturday night. So what we did was eventually we used them as our marketing research. And so we would tell them on stage, most of we say, okay, gang, listen up, listen up, guys. We're now going to play you four songs. We haven't made our mind up which one we're going to record. The next record, we want you to tell us. 
And so we figured, so we played all three or four, and then they, you know, voted on it, shouted and jeered, and that's how we picked which ones we were going to record next. So it gave us a huge advantage over, you know, uh, almost any other group who just think they might have a song. We knew we had a song because we'd had 3,000 people listen to it. The beginning of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs' recording career came as a bit of a surprise to Tony. However, he soon learned that when Billy was hot to trot, there was no holding him back. So I then, you know, uh, started rehearsing with them in between working uh, in the city. And then one morning, about two months after I arrived in Australia, it was um, very early in the morning and there's a bang, bang, bang on my little door. Came through, bang, he says, get up, Baba, he says, we're going to make a record today. And I said, no, well, bloody well not. I said, I've got to go to work. I said, you know, nine o'clock. Stuff work. He says, this is showbiz, baby. It's <laughs> so he drags me in and we make this record. Got any songs? I said, well, okay, there's one here we can have a shot at. And it was called Blue Day and we recorded it. And um, somehow we'd persuaded this record company to, I think it was Linda or Belinda Records, I think it was called. Linda Lee. Yep. I think I think the guy was, I think for sure, I think he might have been an accountant or something, you know, dabbling in extra, you know, curriculums. And, um, and, and before I knew where I was, the damn thing had hit the top, you know, chart, not top, but it was about 17th or something, end of the charts in, in Sydney. Um, I was stunned. Blue Day was recorded in March 1963. The single was released on the Linda Lee label and received considerable airplay. The song was written by Tony and it reached number 15 on the top 40 charts in Sydney. B-side was You Don't Love Me, which was written by Tony with a bit of inspiration from Lennon and McCartney. You don't want me, you don't need me, you don't love me anymore, you don't love me anymore. Tony's influence on the band's success would continue. He received a parcel from his brother who was still living back in England. Amongst the items he sent were a few of the latest records from the UK, 
including an EP from the Rolling Stones. One of the songs on this record was Poison Ivy. My brother was sending me um, records from England and I uh, played it through and I thought, wow, there's a song on there. I'm sure we could do this one. This one's really good. And I went to Billy. I said, Billy, I reckon we should have a shot at trying to record this one. So we worked out between us all a different arrangement to it, totally different arrangement. And uh, we went into the studio and I'd written some ballads, you know, a softy little ballad, which I was thought would be the A side. And um, we recorded it. It turned out the other side, which was the side that um, of the song my uh, brother sent me, um, that became the hit. And uh, the group that actually did the version of it, and many versions have been made of the song, it was Poison Ivy. And there's a story to that song uh, because, I don't know, dozens of people have recorded it before and have recorded it since. And it's considered that our version, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs, is the best version of it that's ever been done, even better than the Rolling Stones. When I say the best, it was certainly the most commercial because we all know what happened then. It just went bang, straight up to number one. Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs' version of Poison Ivy became a smash hit around Australia and it rocketed to the number one spot in June 1964. The song was written by the legendary American songwriting duo Lieber and Stoller, and was originally released by the Coasters in 1959. The Coasters recording reached number seven on the Billboard Hot 100. She comes on like a rose, but everybody knows. She'll get you in touch You can look but you better not touch Poison Ivy Poison Ivy Late at night while you're sleeping Poison Ivy comes a creeping around Personality wise, Tony and Billy were polar opposites However, they formed a strong friendship and a working relationship that lasted right up until Billy's death Billy and I would, we were sort of the unofficial, you know, um, leader dash managers of the group. Billy and I really hit it off really well. I mean, it was chalk and cheese, totally, totally different personalities. He always thought that I was Mr. Bean and he didn't reduce me on stage as Mr. Bean. And he thought I was the weirdest, most eccentric guy he'd ever met, ever. And he's met a lot of eccentric people, let me tell you. Um, so we would then present them to the guys and Vince would uh, say, okay, okay. They were more interested in one being a pop stars, but we all chipped in for the arrangement and slowly we mashed it into place. And um, and there wasn't really any deciding thing. We just decided, look, that's a pretty good sound. And of course, when you get into a studio, other little things happen by accident. Uh, plus you've got the, uh, you know, the, the sound engineer as well they're adding into it and out of it came that uh, that record and I, I learned afterwards many djs in australia played that song because they thought it wasn't an australian group they thought it couldn't possibly be an australian group it must be an overseas one which of course is uh, uh you know that was a good compliment i suppose so i found those things out later Bluey backs up Tony's comment about the radio DJs around Australia only playing the song because they thought they were an English band. The only reason that we did is because they thought it was we were a pommy group. So they started playing it. They didn't realise till it made number one that we weren't. 
<laughs> we're an Aussie group, so they had the copper soon. So. <laughs> also working in the studio on Poison Ivy was another icon of Australian music, Ted Albert. The sound engineer, who turned out to be a really good friend of mine and a marvellous, marvellous person, and one of those really nice, kind men, but smart, and that was Ted Albert of Albert Productions. Um, he's not with us anymore, but he was a he was such a mentor, Ted Albert, such a brave, brave person in uh, in in taking his uh, family company and turning it around and saying we have to stop just doing sheet music and stuff. We've got to get into this you know rock and roll field, and we're going to change everything about our. We're going to find groups that we can record, etc., and we're going to get into that area as well. We're not going to manage groups, but we certainly are going to record them. And uh, and swing in on the back of this, they were horrified. All the other, you know, members of the family, I'm sure. But he pulled it off. He really took. He really took. I mean, the music industry in Australia owes an enormous debt to Ted Albert, the nicest, kindest man I've ever met for a long time in the music industry. Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs' recording of Poison Ivy is universally recognised as the most superior rock and roll version of the song. I think we just gave it a rawness and an edge to it um, than anyone else had bothered doing it. We turned into, I suppose, uh, because we were so used to seeing to all those kids every night, time and time again, and getting, you know, great applause, etc. There's very noisy gigs that we had. Uh, we somehow transferred that live sound into that studio. It was helped because I think in those days you were only dealing with three or four track machines. So you had to be very frugal the way you used each one of those four tracks. Um, and we did. I learned how to layer them down, Billy and I. So it was – what? but it wasn't just us. There were so many people, migrants, coming into Australia from England, and they all spread out. And, of course, they were starting to change entirely the music scene in Australia from surf music into this rock and roll dash beatly sound type stuff. The first time they heard Poison Ivy played on the radio was one of those great moments in the band's history. Oh, God, yes. <laughs> Who doesn't remember when you... When you're listening to your first radio, um, there's nothing quite like it. We were all piled in the car or something, all of us, uh, maybe Bluey's old car, and it was coming on the radio. So we turned those speakers up. We opened the windows and we tooted the horn and we all sang that thing together because that was us. Despite the iconic status Surf City now holds, it was a rough and ready type venue and it was certainly an eye-opener for Tony. We were standing on stage once and. Um, some fight broke out at Surf City and um, I'd already got upset because I, I was complaining because people were coming in there without shoes on and uh, the guys were coming in without ties and I couldn't believe I'd come to such an uncouth country. And the, the, the stage at Surf City is very high up, being a cinema stage basically, and you really couldn't get off of it unless you went down to the side the side door or uh, the little steps there. And so the spike started and I said, oh, Billy, they're fighting, they're fighting. I said, we better go and try and stop this. Thing. He said, mate, he said, mate, don't ever get off this stage, no matter what you see, no matter what happens down there on that floor. He says, you'll get killed. Stay on the stage. <laughs> and and another thing he said to me once, um, 
I finally moved, I moved from Strathfield and I rented a little tiny room at a hotel, I think it was called the Strathfield Hotel at King's Cross at the top. And that's where I lived then for another year, I think, or two years in, in the hotel at the, um, uh, the, uh, the Rembrandt. It was called the Rembrandt Hotel. Yes. And I would then just walk, what, I suppose two minutes from there across the road straight into the uh, doorway of Surf City. So that's that was my life, going back and forth between that. And Surf City was pretty damn rough in those days. And I, I was a little bit nervous about doing this and walking around there at night, etc. as well, even after gigs and then waking back to the hotel. And Billy said, mate, mate, you don't have to worry about that, he says. He said, everyone at Surf City, they know, and everyone at King's Cross, they know we're the band. He says, no one's, no one kills the band. He says, no one kills the band. The word's out. He says, you're on, we're untouchable. No one's going to hurt us. We, prov we provide the music. <laughs> so I felt a little bit more relaxed then. <laughs> Over the ensuing decades, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs would go on to create some classic moments. However, no achievement can highlight how popular they were better than when Poison Ivy kept the Beatles from reaching the number one place on the Aussie charts. The Beatles had to be content with their songs at number two, three, and four. This would be a huge feat just in itself, although it's made even more extraordinary when you consider at the time the Beatles were actually here in Australia on tour. We just fluted. We were so, that song was so popular, uh, it couldn't be budged for a long, long time. So it was one of those magical things. I mean, you know, what are the odds? What are the odds? I'm just amazing. The Beatles were conquering the world, and they were a little bemused to find they couldn't secure the number one spot on the charts down under. The Fab Four even invited Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs to hang out with them in their hotel room. We were in Melbourne at the time, and we were staying at the same hotel. That's actually how we first met them. And I can't even think of the name of the hotel. The Hilton in... No, it wasn't the Hilton. Southern Cross. The Southern Cross in Melbourne. And they were staying at the same hotel. Yeah, well, they're a little bit bigger than us. <laughs> By a long shot. Yeah. No, they're all good guys. I mean, you don't change until later on. You're just there to do a job. But, um, and it's hard work trying to do that. Well, they were sort of our idols because they were, you know, they were world number ones worldwide. And, you know, their stars, we weren't. We were just <laughs> wankers from Hornsby, you know, so to speak. It's, yeah, and they were the biggest thing in the world. You know, you feel, geez, I've met the Beatles. I know them. You know, yeah. Oh, they were just, as I say, the biggest thing in the world. <laughs> How can you beat that? We'll just have to imagine the level of partying that went on that night when the Beatles and the Aztecs joined forces. As even after all these years, Bluey still lives by the motto, what happens on tour stays on tour. Um, I won't say really. No, I can't. I can't tell you, but it was funny. Yeah, but McCartney's a real, he's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Aztecs could hold their own alongside any other rock band. However, there's no denying that in Billy Thorpe, they were led by one of the greatest frontmen this country has ever seen. When it comes to hard-rocking lead singers, Thorpe ranks alongside Johnny O'Keefe, Bon Scott and Jimmy Barnes as our very best. Well, he's the main one that's going to make you or break you, isn't he? <laughs> he's, he's doing the hard work at the front, like, stay in churn, Bill. Look. 
Yeah, no, you didn't. He was just so good. Just, he was just talented, just a born and bred singer. Yeah, he could sing anything and do a good job of it. And a good muser. Yeah, he was um, very talented and a, a lovely guy. I mean, everyone's got their opinions of him, but um, he, to live with him and work with him and have him, you know, is a lovely guy, lovely guy, right till the end. In 1964, Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs performed in front of a then-record 63,000 screaming fans in Melbourne, once again surpassing the Beatles, who had previously drew 50,000 people. Yeah, that, I think that was the, uh, you're talking about the My Music Bowl. Yeah. So, so I think we still hold the record there, actually, for that. Yeah, that was um, something else. And when we got out, we, they put us, we, we couldn't drive out of there. So they brought all the hire cars in and opened the boot and we, two of us in each boot to get the car so we could get out of the place <laughs> in the boot of the car, yeah. Well, until then, that was the biggest show we'd done. I mean, we'd, we'd done all state. We'd been overseas, over to New Zealand and everywhere else doing the festival halls and all that. But um, that was the biggest crowd that we ever had. Of course, the gig at the Mayan Music Bowl is one that stands out for Tony as well. Well, I'd never seen the Mayan Music Bowl before. Uh, it's a pretty imposing thing. Um, and we did it, I think, as part of, I think it was with Channel 9 and Bandstand, because I think uh, it was part of a broadcast from that show. They took the whole cast down there. What was the name of the compere of that show? It was Brian Henderson. Yeah, Brian Henderson. A uh, very nice man. And uh, we went down there and we were doing our bit on the stage there. And it was just like any other gig, but thousands and thousands of people turned up. It was amazing. I couldn't believe it. And um, there's a clip. Um, it's still on, on, uh, on YouTube. And it's, it shows you what happened at that, at that, uh, that gig. And uh, I think people ran up on the stage and there's close-ups of girls. I mean, you, you'd swear they were just, I don't know what it was. They look like, if you turn the sound off, they look like they're in childbirth. I mean, God almighty, it's just, you'd think they were all going to faint. It was an extraordinary um, uh, live performance out there. I mean, you could hardly hear it. We could, you know, turn our amps off. Actually, we did that once. <laughs> we got so bored once, we turned the amps off. And uh, they said, Billy Thornton, the Essex, the curtains opened. I think it was in Perth. We didn't even play. We pretended we were playing, but you couldn't, you couldn't hear us. The screaming was so loud, it didn't matter whether we turned the amps on or not. <laughs> and another time, and again, it was Perth. It was really wild down there. Um, we were used to you know, getting screams, etc. but it, they were starting to storm the stage. And that started to get really dangerous. Um, it's okay having one girl run at you and place her arms around you. But if you get like 10 at the same time, you're going to get seriously hurt. Um, and in fact, Billy did and ended up in hospital on that tour in Perth. Anyway, we were doing the stage there. The curtains opened. We were playing along and they were getting wilder and wilder. And uh, we were ready because we discussed it. Um, we'd all just say, okay, if, if, we, if, if two or three start coming at us, that's it. We get off the stage, okay? We don't want to, you know, get trampled underfoot here. And so uh, we're all ready. And um, and Billy's looking at me. He says, look out, shit, here they come. Let's go. And I turned around, pulled out my amp plug and rushed off the stage. And I sit down and, and I sort of turned around. And I'm the only one that's gone off the stage. 
the others <laughs> were still there because they bouncers had caught the three or four girls, and so I sheepishly <laughs> sidled on, <laughs> stuck my <laughs> a guitar amp thing, and continued playing. They said, Where the hell did you get to? I said, Don't ask. <laughs> For Bluey, the frenzied response of the crowd did have its benefits. Um, just keep playing. <laughs> Where are we? Don't get lost. <laughs> keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's good, but because uh, you're only young, I mean, tw- 21 years old or something, you, yeah, well, they like you, and that's what you want them to do, and <laughs> that's the name of the game. <laughs> yeah, the more noise they made, the less I had to work. One tour of Western Australia almost ended prematurely when the crowd got hold of Thorpe at Perth Airport and he was almost torn apart limb from limb. Well, that was in, uh, I think it was at the airport when we arrived. We couldn't believe it. Um, it was just packed. And they were clinging onto fences and things, etc. And uh, they cornered Billy on, the, I think, the top of a car or something or other. And they really, you know, hurt him. I thought there was going to be nothing left by the time they left. And uh, they had to take him to hospital. Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas were another huge international act that was left in the wake of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. The English group were managed by Brian Epstein, who also managed the Beatles. Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas had half a dozen top five hits in the UK and the USA, including the number one smash hit, Little Children. We'd done Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas. We'd done their tour out here and New Zealand. And um, in New Zealand, we had Poison Ivy was number one in New Zealand at the time. So we'd done, Poison, uh, we'd done Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas here. We flew over there. We'd done Auckland on the first night. And uh, we were under billing. We were billing just under Billy J. Kramer. And we killed him. And we didn't realise at the time, but Poison Ivy was number one. So over there, Carriage Odeon, who took us over there, uh, said, hang on, we'll have to do, change this around a bit and put us on top of Billy J. Kramer. So that was something. And they're lovely guys. He's a lovely guy. The Dakotas are one of the best bands I've ever heard in my life. They are just fabulous guys. And, uh, yeah, so we ended up billing over the top of him when we got over there. So that was just funny when you're doing a, you're on the billion under an international act, and then suddenly you go, whoops, <laughs> and you're on top, you go, whoa. <laughs> For Tony, touring with Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas was a big deal, but it wasn't as memorable as when the band toured with Screaming Lord Such. Our manager then started importing big stars from overseas and touring them through Australia, and then shoving us, of course, because he had us under contract, um, as the second act on the bill. 
So we met a whole line of overseas, you know, Billy J. Kramer and the Dakotas, um, Screaming Lord Such. Um, he was a character. My God. He shot me once, too, in a hotel in a country town. And uh, Whoa, hang on there a second. Did Tony just say Screaming Lord Such once shot him? My God. He shot me once, too, in a hotel. Oh, God. He was such a... A crazy guy. Um, I, I was given the task of going to his room one night in a country hotel where we were renting out before we did the gig that night. And uh, I knock on his hotel doors in the corridor up in those old fashioned hotels. And I bang on the door. He said, What do you want? And I said, It's Tony. Come on, we're going to get going to the theater. Opens the door and he's got a gun in his hand. And he says, You bastard. And he shoots it. He shoots me. And it's a huge explosion. Um, I don't know if, if you've had a gun fired off right in front of you, but if you're in a small hallway in a hotel, I just lurched back, hit the back wall, and slumped down onto the ground. And I was convinced. I think it was probably an automatic reaction to, to, to when you can't dodge the bullets. So. And I was convinced. I'm patting my chest thinking, I should be hurting now. He just shot me, bastard. Um and then he comes over. Oh, mate, I'm sorry, mate. It's just a joke, just a joke, just a joke. <laughs> and he had a blank in it or something too. But hell, um, I mean, you don't forget when someone's actually shooting you. You don't forget. I've never forgotten that. He was such a bugger. We'll feature more episodes of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs down the track. However, check out Tony Barber's book, Long Way to Your Drop. And also, Thorpe authored a couple of great books himself, Sex, Thugs and Rock and Roll. And he also wrote another book with the same title as one of his classic songs, Most People I Know Think That I'm Crazy. Okay, that's enough of the talk. Here's Poison Ivy by Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs. She comes up like a rose And everybody knows She'll get you in dodge Well, you can look, but you better not
Thanks for listening to Awesome Aussie Songs. Thanks to Tony and Bluey for your time, and thanks to Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs for the music. Hi, this is Molly. You've just listened to a podcast brought to you by Marcos Promotions, written and produced by my dad, Sheldon the Kangaroo Kip. And presented by Josh Urson. This is Molly Kidd saying to my good friend, Holly Kirsten, Hit it, girl! <laughs>